Hello and welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name is Liz Murphy and away over yonder we have my friend. Hello Mim. Hi Liz. Hello everyone. How are you? I'm doing well Liz. I'm doing all right. It's a bit of a chaotic world we're in in Australia at the moment isn't it? Well, if you were to ask me how I was, which I'm sure that's what you're thinking about doing, but I'll preempt it with, I'm, I'm actually, even though I feel good today, the last, I've got to say, the last six weeks has been really, I don't know, it's felt like a roller coaster being a woman in Australia at the moment. And on the one hand, I feel so desperately sad about what's happening in our government in relation to the revelations of sexual assault and misogyny. But on the other hand, I've also been so inspired by the bravery of the women, the survivors who have spoken out about the misogyny and the rape that they've experienced. And the other thing I feel really moved to talk about or just to mention is I've I've been thinking about the the social workers that work in this space and how amazing they are and I just wanted to also acknowledge them because behind those women's stories will also be other women like social workers supporting them and helping them find their voice and to you know I don't know tell their stories and be proud and um, yeah and I just think it's been a time of for women to really strongly reconnect and say bloody enough is a friggin enough. Well I was gonna say don't you think this is about time Liz like in some ways I just feel like is this was inevitable that there would be an outpouring of stories and responses and the 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 response from the government, which is like they're completely blindsided, like where did this come from? Mm. Yeah, I just find that utterly unbelievable. Mm. Like, you know, I remember a f- number of years ago now being at an International Women's Day conference forum and hearing Sarah Hansen Young speak about her experiences of misogyny and sexism in Parliament, right? And, like, that was a long time ago. It's not like people haven't been saying things. So... For now, I'm not, I feel awful that it is this has happened now because people have actually come out and said very clear rape and sexual assault charges need to be laid, right? So I feel awful that we've got to that point. But that's just a point that was inevitable in my mind because of this culture that has been happening for so long, so long. So long. This idea they had no idea, that, that they didn't know what culture they were perpetuating is actually ridiculous. Oh, and I, I can't even Im- imagine them saying those words. Like it's just uh, mind-boggling. No, because they don't take but, responsibility, Liz. Yeah, exactly, Mim, exactly. But I, I was recently I was speaking to a, um, a colleague who runs a sexual assault service down here where I live and she was saying their waiting list is absolutely through the roof and I can't help yes. but wonder about, you know, whenever we hear a news report, whenever we hear, um, you know, people discussing what's currently, you know, in the, in the happening in Parliament at the moment, they always say contact your local um, services or your rape crisis yes. um, line, and that, which is, of course, I mean, of course we want to do that. But I'm also hearing that the workload is just 
got, you know, through the roof Absolutely. at the moment. Absolutely. And so my, my thoughts and my care, I just really want to send that out to yes. all our social work colleagues and friends who work in those areas and in women's services and in le women's legal services. And, you know, you are amazing and, yes. um, yeah. It's such a difficult heroes. space to work in anyway. Yes. But at the moment to be sort of overwhelmed by the referrals would be so, so intense, isn't it? And especially having that angst about here are women who are saying, okay, right, I'm feeling like I, I want to now actually talk about it and I want support around my um, my healing and my my. my my recovery and then having to go on a waiting list it's a yeah. horrible space to be in uh, as a social worker and and that that yeah that's tough really tough yeah. maybe maybe here's a thought maybe we might want to actually increase funding to some of these services there's a crazy old oh. thing let's move on now from the oh god I didn't know this was happening to bloody start doing something about it well, let's actually allow these social workers to do the work they need to do, which is deal with these wait lists, right? But, of course, funding that, again, requires some level of responsibility on the funders and the government's part. So, mm. yeah, problematic at so many levels, Liz. Uh, for anybody out there um, thinking that this, is in, this whole situation is, is in some way triggering for you, then also we urge you to seek some support at this time. Don't let us saying, talking about the large wait list, put you off approaching a service as well because actually I think this is the time where um, the services, they're the ones who know how to respond. Mm -hmm. That's actually where the expertise lies. So, um, so if this is in any way triggering conversation for you, we also urge you to take care of yourself and get some support. Yeah, good point, Nim. And I promise that I've now got off my milk crate. I'm going to <laughs> actually let's 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 acknowledge that we've actually got a social work story to share with oh, people. Oh, and I'm so pleased that we do actually, Liz. Like um, this is a great story we're going to share today from a Swedish social worker who uh, is working in. Um, a local government area in outside Stockholm, outside the city of Stockholm. And um, this is a recording that uh, Felix, who was on placement with us last year, was able to record. Felix himself has a connection to Sweden and spent a lot of time there. And um, and I also have a connection that I'll talk about a little later, Liz, but um, it's really, uh, it's an interesting story. We've spoken quite a bit on this podcast about the interplay between individual intervention and community work intervention. And uh, this, this story actually came at a really interesting time as well, Liz. Didn't we get um, an email that sparked an idea for this uh, episode as well? We did. I mean, I think it's an example of synchronicity, really. We received this. Uh, can I read out a little bit of this yeah, email? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go right so this is, this is an email that uh, we received from Beth, and I'm just going to read a chunk of it. Beth says, you read out a while back an email that another student had written that they found that these podcasts were like supervision. And I absolutely agree. They have also helped my partner better understand what it is that I do. I'm currently studying community work and was looking through your podcast to see whether there was any on this topic. It is not a clear social work cut topic role and I could really do with some physical examples of how and where this work applied. So Beth, we have got a story for you. 
Absolutely. This is, this is it. So enjoy everyone and um, we'll see you on the other side. Bye. So I've been working at the Swedish social services for approximately four years uh, out in the field. Uh, my workplace is outside of Stockholm in a municipality, about 15 minutes from uh, the central uh, station. The particular uh, municipality that I work in is um, what you call Million Program in Swedish, but uh, basically the projects, which is a type of housing projects that grew from the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. And these projects were basically a way for the state to provide cheap housing for uh, the working classes that needed to be upgraded to modern standards in Sweden. So it has a really unique feeling to it, or even an acquired taste, you could say, because it's like these gray, massive concrete blocks in the middle of the forest or the nature. Um, I find it quite beautiful. But of course, there's another side to it, and that is that it uh, creates a lot of physical uh, segregation to it. Uh, out in the suburbs, especially on the south side, uh, there's income differences compared to the north sides and, of course, the inner city. The case I'm going to talk about actually started with that a lot of citizens, other professionals like teachers and um, people working at local stores and stuff like that, uh, they all witnessed more and more criminality and drug dealing at like broad daylight, at uh, community centers, outside schools. And the people were feeling more and more like they lost control over their uh, local neighborhood. So me and my colleagues, we work at um, like social work at the field. So what we did was basically for a few months, we uh, started creating relationships with, uh, with uh, especially the young men that were into drug dealing that sometimes also was uh, addicted to narcotics. After a while, we interviewed and talked to their parents, uh, school teachers, and we saw that we couldn't solve this problem with just individual work. So what we essentially did over a long period of time, of course, was that we gathered all of their uh, networks, like parents, uh, brothers, uh, older siblings, uh, teachers, uh, even I think what at one point uh, a football trainer and an imam to make sure that we can create a safe and working network uh, around these uh, young people. Uh, so we, at one point, I remember we. Um, we invited all of their parents. I think perhaps eight or nine parents came. We had a meeting and we quickly realized that these were parents that either worked really hard or were very far outside the system. They don't didn't know how to, for example, ask for help, ask social services for help, ask the school for extra help. So 
what we did was that we gathered all these parents, we listened to them, and they got to essentially map their problems. Yeah, I'm worried about this, and I'm worried about my son being up late. I'm worried about my son's uh, addiction and stuff like that. And then after that, we started to give different types of people roles to fill. For example, one mother, she was uh, working really late. She couldn't um, keep track of her son. So we made sure, okay, uh, his best friend's father is home at uh, eight, for example. Uh, can you make sure that he's all right? And, and not just for control. I mean, it created a sense of community, I guess, because um, they started eating dinner together um, and do like this little, small, but really practical things. And, and of course, uh, the ordinary social services um, made sure that the, the youths that needed it had uh, drug counseling and sometimes therapy and other uh, more individually based uh, care efforts. Another thing we found out was that we realized that most of these youths didn't have any meaningful activities outside of school or, you know, their daily chores at home. Uh, so most of them would just stand around in street corners or in the in the malls or something like that. And uh, so we asked asked around, "What do you prefer to do? If you could do anything, if you could um, have any meaningful activities, what would it be?" Most of them they came up with different, and they came up, came up with uh, different alternatives, um, and they started to vote. So after the vote, it was pretty clear that football uh, won. Um, so me and my colleagues from the social services, we checked around for good locals or football fields. Uh, and we got to loan one for free because, yeah, since we were the social services. Um, and we asked the youth just to make some quick rules. Um, for example, like... What happens if a fight breaks out? Who would control it? Uh, what happens if somebody shows up drunk or uh, high on drugs? And they quickly wrote down the rules and we gave them the mandate to, to essentially run this operation or football tournaments and practices by themselves. And we quickly realized that they had more discipline and control than like most football coaches uh, it was really good to see. But what happened on a more uh, broader level is not that just these kids stopped uh, using or selling drugs on the on an individual level, but I think also their identity changed. Um, they st stopped being these uh, loud, annoying or aggressive youths from uh, from the local community. Uh, and instead, they became the football guys, you know, uh, and more and more youths from all sorts of backgrounds started showing up at the practices, wanting to take part of it. Uh, and that's an example from a pretty unorthodox method, which is uh, community work, when you try to organize and engage uh, different parts of a community to change um, the social 
fabric of that particular community. Uh, and I believe that for my experience, for my work, that we are going to towards a more and more individualized social care. Um, and that's an apprehension that I have for the future if we go all the way to just seeing individuals uh, when we conduct social work. Uh, because I'm convinced when we stop seeing social problems and our clients from a holistic perspective and just seeing individual faults, then I think our work method and ethics will reflect that. And I think social services will be a lot more repressive and disciplinizing than it should be. Because what I learned when I worked with uh, these youths and their parents and other professionals was that it wasn't just about bringing them together because it felt nice for the youths or the parents or even us. What it really did was showing that civil society still has a lot of power to change social problems and create a good social environment for everyone. Um, that's the power of social work when you truly involve your clients in the decision-making, in how social work should be conducted. And this especially becomes important in my line of work since I'm an outreach field social worker. I think it's the correct term. When we basically walk the streets uh, late hours at night, the locals know us. We can sometimes, if we don't have much to do, we can stand and talk with the local shop owners or just people from the neighborhood. We can talk with them, give them practical advice, um, you know, really down-to-earth social work. Uh, and what we can see is that this draws down the cases uh, the ordinary social uh, social services have because a lot of kids and families come to us uh, before they need to be an active case at the social services. So to summarize, I truly believe that we need to have a variety of methods when we meet clients and challenges that are rising in uh, the postmodern world where we're living in a globalized world, we live uh, in a segregated world uh, and we need to meet our clients at where they're at. Uh, and I see more and more tendencies towards this type of new public management view or perspective of social work where we tend to quantify uh, an individual and uh, and their social behavior or even social problems as uh, as a phenomenon, uh, and this has also have a, had a huge impact on how social work is conducted for us as professionals. Um, uh, for example, we can see that we get more and more uh, administrative. Uh, assignments we spend more times uh, in front of our computers uh, writing journals um, and 
don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these things are not important, but I'm saying that these aspects of of a work can't take over uh, the client based work. Um, so to come to any type of conclusion, I think there's an old saying that goes something like, "It takes an an entire village to raise a kid," and I truly believe that that type of thinking can be used in social work if we choose to see and really investigate uh, what part of civil society uh, can help us or what different types of function in society can do for an individual or a family or as a community as a whole. Liz, this story took me right back, I have to tell you. So I um, I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I did my final placement in Sweden, um, in Stockholm, and it was with an adolescent residential group home, uh, not dissimilar to the environment that this social worker describes. Uh, so I have um, seen those grey towers that he talks about uh, in, in, right in the forests, um, these sort of and and when he describes it as um a bit beautiful I have to say I agree it's quite an amazing juxtaposition to see um you know in Sydney where we are when you see a public housing tower it's always in the midst of urban despair yeah like um there's nothing beautiful about that there's nothing green about it that's for sure (laughs) and there's nothing green about it that's exactly right whereas Sweden is this amazing green environment like when you're talking forests you're talking the sort of forest that we all imagine when you talk about fairy tales right um so like the lush green and it's quite it's quite an amazing 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 image uh, when I was there, I um, went around and spent a lot of time with local councils, spent a lot of time with uh, detention centres, jails, and then public housing units as well, and um, these towers. So uh, it's such an interesting, uh, such an interesting society to have this story come out of. Um, and in social work, I know we often. What prompted me to do my final placement in Sweden was because I had a lecturer at the time who spoke a lot about the difference in the criminal justice system in Sweden versus the rest of the world. That was the big thing that we were talking about in Australia at that point in time when I studied. But but there are actually so many different areas where Sweden has really different models. Um, So that's really interesting. But then on the other hand, this story showed the universality of social work as well, right? Yeah. So that uh, that was quite interesting for me. Look, um, so I was at uni about 10 years ahead of you, right? Yeah. And the Scandinavian model and the Dutch model were often held up mm. in relation to great social policy, um, yeah. cutting edge um, approaches in relation to social work. And, I, you know, like I, I, you know, we're talking early 80s here. So I, I wasn't aware of what was currently going on and I was really interested in this social workers statement about the 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 that they too are experiencing um I guess this move towards more the individualized care versus 
the type of social work that he's engaged in, community yeah. development and community work. And um, so I was, I was really surprised at that. Um, and as you said, I, you know, I, I guess we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes. Yeah. But I guess what struck me about his story was the power of community work in addressing a social issue like young people and disconnection from I guess from community but and you know seeing that playing out in terms of drug use and I just thought there is no way that an individualized approach to this social issue in this neighborhood would have had anywhere near the impact that this approach had the engaging in the in the community in the way that they did and he never mentioned the word connection, I don't think, but that was the thread for me. I just saw that, that the parents were engaged in it. The parents were engaged in identifying the problems, but also the solutions and some of those lovely examples of just connecting with each other to support, you know, that that the, the young man whose mum was working just, you know, the best friend's dad inviting them over for meals, small gestures which would have had very strong impacts on connecting this young man to, to someone, to, to, to community. But more than anything, I loved that the young people got to actually prioritise where they thought they would want to kind of spend Absolutely. their energy. Wasn't that amazing? And that statement about their identity changed from whatever they, you know, however they identified themselves prior to their football guys. I loved it. You know, it would have been so easy. Had, it, had they gone down an individual approach, it would have been so easy then to go down a blaming and therefore disciplinary approach, right? Like it, you can see how easily it happens that then you get the police involved and so now these young people on the street corner are just being moved on or they're being, you know, put through the court system because of the drug use and the drug dealing. And, like, straight away it becomes a blame scenario where the young person is at the centre of the blame. But by coming at it from this uh, community-based perspective and this um, idea of networks, he spoke about, you're right, he didn't say connection, but he did speak about networks. And I think that was what was so important. And that's what we know about from social work, right, is that the ecological model and the um, systems theory really tells us about the situating of the person within, right, within their holistic environment. So, like, by coming at it from that perspective, the social worker is then able to pull on this wealth of resources that actually would not have even been noticed had you come at it from an individual perspective, right? Like you actually needed to map where these young people were in their, in their ecology, in their environment, in order to then be able to draw on the different resources, which I thought was so expertly done in this story. Like I think you're absolutely right, those really key moments where the social worker was able to observe that now these families are working with each other's children in different ways. Now they're supporting each other. Threads between the community members are now stronger around that young person to support that young person. I mean, that's really the fundamental strength and um, beautiful purpose of this sort of intervention, right? Oh, 
so well said, Mim. And I feel like the lens in which, so so just just adding to what you've said, so the lens in which people viewed the young people. So seeing them as someone that I'll invite over to have yeah. a meal because he's got a connection with my child and and like and I just think you can't actually put a price tag on this. No. But I am. I'm going to just say how much more efficient in terms of where you fund social like so, social work approach, how much more efficient and economical is it? to work with community as opposed to having many, many social workers working with individual young people. Yeah. I, like I just think if you wanted to get into a business model, this one has a far bigger impact. And I'm not saying it's community work versus individual. I see that they both have their value, of Which is what he said as well. Like the young people still had their individual interventions at the same yes. time as this was happening, drug and alcohol counselling, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, of course they need to work together. They're pieces of a puzzle, right? Yes. Um, but you're absolutely spot on there, Liz, that actually the reason why we don't have this economical perspective on community work or group work, um, these larger, more macro interventions, although group work is also individual, very therapeutically based but um is because we don't have we're often as social workers not quantifying the outcomes and the results of those sorts of interventions so therefore it doesn't speak to funding models and I think that's something as a profession we have come around to and I know in different parts of the world in different ways we have but these pockets where social work practice happens these little more rural or remote or outside of the city centre spaces, they're the places that these rich interventions are happening that then aren't in the public view, right? And they're therefore harder to get funded. Right. And yet um, I think about some of the work that's been done in our um, housing projects and the, the fact that there are social workers attached to those those towers as well yes. um, who do use perhaps a similar approach in in engaging with the community around what is going to be meaningful for them in terms of of connection um, but it also in advocacy in in relation to improving their um, their accommodation and the resources available and so I guess I, I was trying to think about well where in Australia do our community workers sit yeah. thinking about this this um, the Scandinavian model and yeah. uh, you know before we started recording we were talking about yes it, we tend to have them in our local councils as well as housing as well as health they seem to be scattered around um, yeah around our services yeah but I think also they're not always called community workers and it and then that's this weird structure that we have um in, in terms of um uh, payment and like you know how are social workers paid right and so if they're paid on a certain award then um, they will end up therefore being employed in non-government organizations or neighborhood centers or and therefore they're more likely to be called community workers whereas if they are paid on a government award they're more likely to be based in the Department of Housing or in um, uh, local health services or uh, whatever it is and um, and therefore they're more likely to be called social workers. And so we actually have this disconnect between, and, and you know, Liz, I mean, the history of community work versus social work in Australia is a long one. 
And so, and it's a big ongoing debate. And so um, when I, I think that's one of the crucial things that this story shows as well is that community work and community work interventions, that's one of your tools in your toolbox, right? Like it's not that you are a community worker and that is what you do and you don't work individually with people or you are a therapist and that's all you do and you don't and you only work individually with people and for some social workers that may be the case but for the vast majority of social workers community work interventions should be one of the tools that are in your toolbox and when you go to work with the issue whatever the issue is whether there are individuals in the midst of it of course which they always are um, or whether that's your referral source or not, it doesn't matter that community work intervention should be one of the, the tools that you are pulling out, that you are pulling out as well as your individual therapeutic skills, right? Um, I, think, I think that's what this story really beautifully shows. And I think the, the last little commentary from the social worker was the way in which he does both of that, like yeah. him walking through the neighbourhood having conversations with the, 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 the people who live there. Um, of course, there's going to be that individual connection because, like you say, that's just part of how we work as social workers. Yeah. And I appreciate you, you pointing that out, Mim, that it is one of the tools in our toolbox and that's what makes our profession so important and valuable. I think so. I, th I think so, Liz. And what makes it different as well because actually... Um, if you think about all of the disciplines that are working with people, vulnerable peoples and peoples at risk, not all of them are coming from this holistic perspective. And so I think, I think our social workers really need to own that and step into that space, which we do, but step into it more, lean into it more, which is really interesting because one thing we haven't mentioned is that it was World Social Work Day um, just recently uh, and the theme for World Social Work Day in 2021 is Ubuntu, which is about loving kindness and caring for our and relationship and caring for each other as a community. So actually, um, to have that word coming from our African colleagues is so important, right? Because that's what this, this story is really showing us. And the, even the logo, I love the logo. I think it says something like, I am because we are. That's the, right. The, the, the meaning of Ubuntu. So um, yeah. how beautiful that it's in, encapsulated in the one word. Oh, it's, you know, oh, my God, absolutely. Um, and all of the wonderful work that's been coming out from our African colleagues around Ubuntu, Ubuntu and the importance of Ubuntu is just phenomenal. So I love it. Um, happy World Social Work Day, Liz. We haven't even got there in this discussion. <laughs> Seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> I know, I know. And but we were together for World Social Work Day. We were, year. we were. We even presented, didn't we? Yes. we? We shared a bit of our own personal stories as well as the research that we've been doing in compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And um, since that, that um, I guess, presentation, I've been receiving lots of emails from social workers around... Uh, feeling validated about their roles but also the cost that can come with working as social workers and I was thinking that maybe you and I can be talking about that a little more on this podcast and about how we need to uh, support each other as a profession to maybe do some stronger advocacy about the, the care that we need in order to do our work. 
Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm always happy to have that discussion, Liz, as you know. Um, what really struck me on World Social Work Day was how valued storytelling was by our colleagues. And, um, and, I think, and I think really as social workers, we know that, that stories are at the heart of all of our work, right? Uh, but um, this World Social Work Day, after such a horrendous year last year, I think um, it's good for us to kind of sit in that space and realise how valued our stories are for each other as well as for our, um, the people that we work with every single day. Yeah. And that's what drives us to run this podcast, my friend. That's absolutely. what absolutely drives us. Absolutely. The value of our stories. Yeah, yeah. I want to really thank that Swedish social worker for their story. Um, it's always fabulous for us to get stories from different parts of the world because, Liz, you and I are so conscious, and Justin as well, our producer, so conscious of our Western perspective and that um, we do not, we are not every social worker working in every context across the world, of course. And so I really want to encourage anybody out there who is working in um, a different context to us who, uh, you know, to share your story with us, get on your voice memo, send it to us via www.socialworkstories.com. Um, and uh, we would really love to hear from you because these stories really show us the diversity of social work practice across the world. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So now I'm getting all excited, imagining the stories that are just going to be coming down the line toward us. And we will <laughs> treat them with with due care and consideration. So and thank love. you. Yeah, thank you. And, and love and Ubuntu. So all right. Thanks so much, Liz. Thank Thanks, you so Liz. much, our listeners. Thanks, Justin Stesh, our beautiful producer, for all your hard work. And to Felix for this interview. Um, it's great to be here in 2021, Liz. Thank God 2020 is behind us, hey? <laughs> Ubuntu, Mim. Ubuntu, Justin. Ubuntu, listeners. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Bye.